Thanks, Gary. Never trust Revelation when it says, oh, man, it's not done. <laughs> the imagination is our way into the divine imagination, says Wendell Berry. It says, the imagination is our way into the divine imagination, permitting us to see wholly as a whole and also wholly what we perceive as scattered in order uh, as order what we perceive as random. So our imagination builds into, opens the door to the divine imagination. So this summer we're going to work on our imaginations. And this might seem kind of like a silly thing to do, uh, like something that you wouldn't want the whole church to do, maybe like a fringe book club or like it's something to do for a hobby, something that lies dormant in you and then you have kids and it wakes up a little when you start to read fairy tales at bedtime. No way imagination could be this important or this central to our lives. No way it could be, as Barry claims, the doorway into who God is and how God is. No way that our mere imaginations can start to gather all the scattered facts and figures, the diverse data points of God and craft them into something coherent. But that's what we're staking here. And that's what we're doing through one of, if not the undisputedly strangest books in the Bible, Revelation, this summer. So welcome on this journey. It's been said that um, there's kind of two kinds of churches for reading Revelation. There's a church that um, doesn't read Revelation at all because it's too confusing and violent and weird and irrelevant for our modern lives. Or there's the kind of church that reads Revelation way too much um, and is kind of obsessed with it. It's a code to crack and there's dates and predict predictive prophecies that will tell you just about anything you want to know, when the end of the world is, and then that date gets reset to a later date, right? Or who the Antichrist is, or which global economy is most threatening to us, things like this. This summer, we're really not looking to be either kind of church, and we're not really looking to be a happy medium between the two. I don't know if either impulse is super helpful. I want us to try to chart a course that's not really all that new, in the grand scheme of how Christians read the Bible. Probably has more affinity um, with how the church read scripture before the Bible became a textbook. Uh, if you're a little unsure right now, that's okay. We'll kind of ease in and mostly we'll, we'll sing our way into Revelation. Um, and hopefully you'll slowly begin to feel equipped with some helpful tips and tools to, to read well. And you're not alone because uh, most people think Revelation is pretty strange. Even someone like John Calvin, who wrote on everything and had an opinion on everything, did not write a commentary on Revelation. I don't know if it's because Revelation was last or because you didn't want to touch it, but there's no commentary on Revelation, right? So let's start, start out with just to, to frame this for us. Um, and if this is a little teachy, we'll get, we'll get to... Uh, proclamation here in a minute, but just a few notes of setting and style, because this is what you're supposed to do in like fourth grade English class, is always know who's writing, to whom, from, when, from where, right? So a few notes 
First, it's helpful to know who wrote Revelation and what sort of circumstances. The writer identifies himself as John. John's got great nicknames, too. In this, it says John the Theologian, which in medieval talk is John the Divine, right? Isn't that so cool? Uh, and he seems to be writing in seclusion from a small Greek prison island in the Aegean Sea called Patmos. This is a great Eastern icon of this radiant beam of like eagle light coming to him, and he's hugging the scroll. It's so good. It seems most likely that John wrote in the mid-90s, um, like not 1990s, like 90s. And that's important uh, a little later when John starts talking about current events. Because it, it's kind of a difference when you start talking about um, lousy presidents, which decade you're talking about, and which also tells you which president you mean, right? And so in John's case, this would kind of point the finger at Domitian rather than Nero, if he wrote earlier. Both bad dudes. This one is particularly the bad guy that he's talking about. And this kind of also shows a key feature, a key way that John writes from, uh, from the particular and through the particular to the universal. He's not writing this... this um, philosophy about how to be. He's writing in a place to a thing that's happening. And then it has universal and ongoing uh, repercussions for us. Um, I think because that's true, that revelation, that makes revelation both historical and theological, which for us means that revelation is primarily talking about politics and worship or theopolitics and Theopoetics, right? Like that's what's happening here. So that's who's writing from where, when. And a couple notes on form and genre. This, this is really important for how we, we read our Bibles. If you haven't noticed, like mostly this summer we're going to be like relearning how to read our Bibles through Revelation. That's kind of what's happening here. So it's important to know what you're reading what it's meant to be and, and how it's written. And Revelation doesn't really fit purely in any of the usual boxes, but it kind of has several boxes checked. Because at once it's a letter, consider Paul's many letters from prison. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. It's a, it's a letter, think of more contemporary examples like Diedrich Bonhoeffer writing in prison, his letters and papers, or Martin Luther King Jr. in the Birmingham jail, or Nelson Mandela in Robben Island. Prison winds up being a pretty prolific writing habitat for Christian ministers and activists, right? Maybe it's the only space they sit still long enough to get their thoughts on paper, right? So John writes his letter to seven churches he knew in Asia, and we'll have more on that in a few weeks. And Revelation, in addition to being a letter, Revelation is also a prophecy. Uh, you see, favorite is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. But perhaps not how you normally think of a prophecy. I don't think that's weakening it. It might actually give it a little more potency because Hebrew prophets warn more than they predict events. They stand between God and humanity within God's people and they issue calls from God to humanity to come back to change your ways, to repent. 
Isaiah and Ezekiel, Hosea and John the Baptist stand in this tradition, and most of the time they get killed for it, right? They stand around. Uh, to, if, if you were to read these as predictions, though, and if you were to stand around and to set your watch by one of their visions, you might miss the actual invitation that's happening for these prophets. It's an invitation that change is possible, that the future is not faded, that you can participate in what God's doing and God wants you back. But neither will a prophet ever shy away from telling the sometimes horrific truth about the logical effects and divine judgment on the other end of idolatry and unfaithfulness and injustice. These are the things that, that make prophets mad because they make God mad. Idolatry, unfaithfulness, injustice. So Revelation is kind of a letter, also kind of a prophecy, but perhaps even more than a letter or a prophecy, Revelation is just that, a revelation. Like, oh, and also I'll note, singular revelation, not revelation. So we're, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call that now. It's revelation, right? And, and the word for revelation is actually apocalypse. And so revelation is, is a revelation. It's an apocalyptic vision. And again, by apocalypse, I don't necessarily mean having to do with the end of the world, but rather an unveiling, a disclosing. This is really hard because we expect a revelation to reveal. And if it were up to us, revelation would be a lot more revelatory, a lot simpler. It would be like written in bullet points on a PowerPoint slide and give us action items to do in a specific order. You can see why so many people have attempted to turn Revelation into bullet points on a, power, on a PowerPoint with actionable chronological items to do, right? But sometimes God conceals in order to reveal. And rarely is God's revelation ever easy to see or to stomach. I think revelation really gets that. It calls us in, into something that requires a lot more of us, a lot more of our, our hearts and a lot more of our minds, a lot more of our attentions and our imaginations. So what if revelation functions maybe in a more descriptive way, setting up like a time-lapse camera in a dimension that we're not regularly cognizant of, like a cosmic climate change of which we're all deniers, right? And this way, Revelation is always really open to interpretation, but it's that process of interpretation which reveals. It's that process that makes us the sort of people tuned into what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will see to completion in this world. One trait of apocalypse is the peeling back of a thin veil to show the sort of celestial conflict that is happening all around us. When the gospels say the kingdom of the heavens is at hand, it's that close, it's that arm's reach, it also means that there's constant cannon fodder at the kingdom's gates. That there's a kind of spiritual warfare with high stakes, but the victory's already been won. And Revelation tells the story of the ways that should wake us up, but also comfort us. This, uh, I kind of have an, a real-life example of this um, by analogy lately, is 
Um, and Matt Hoffman is, is probably the one to talk about this because he does internet security for a living. But I started to get security announcements for the website that I administer for the church. And it's, it's pretty frightening uh, when you actually know how many like daily, minute by minute attacks are happening on your site. Like I think most of us just assume like it either doesn't happen or when it happens, it was like an isolated incident that someone uh, was was like really crafty and particular about. But actually, all the time there are bad attempted logins, and sometimes like the IP gets caught and locked out. Right? This gives great context at any given time the site is always under siege and a hack is merely a momentary success out of millions of constant attacks this is the world in which we live stay awake be ready but fear not right so th those are some reading notes i hope that's helpful i hope we can take this and i encourage you you all to read this summer uh, on your own so when you come here you have questions or you're already kind of in the story right now, more of a proclamation. If you walk away with any single thing today, I hope you might learn something new that might help you read Revelation this summer and beyond with more confidence and truthfulness. And I think that that one thing would have to do with the word witness. Witness. This word pops up all over, over and over in our passage today. This is something that John does. John witnesses. He bears witness to the word of God. Ultimately, this is something that Jesus does. Jesus witnesses. Often when we think of witness, especially in church context, there's kind of two ways we think of it. We think of witness as a noun, uh, like a witness on a stand in a courtroom, or we think of witness as a verb, which is like a door-to-door -door evangelist, right? Um, like a witness, I, I think like the witness par excellence is uh, Jack Nicholson in uh, Few Good Men, right? You can't handle the truth, like that's what a witness is. It's a witness that tells under oath and threat of legal recourse the truth about something, the truth that is, it can be costly, but it can also be uh, about someone who is distant. A witness tells what they know, but not always what they've seen. This happens also with like character witnesses who craft a narrative about who they think someone really is based on what they've seen in that person or experience, right? Or the verb to witness. To witness is to, is to tell somebody about Jesus, to lay out a schema of salvation with the hope to include them into the story. Sometimes these stories are a little too simplistic or reductionistic, but in some sense, how could they not be a little too reductionistic of this big story, right? A witness does their best to tell a story bigger than them in a truthful and hospitable way. So let's not let the, the worst or most dramatic versions of a witness or witnessing ruin this for us, right? I contend that Revelation calls us to have a picture of, to have our picture of a witness reformed and transfigured. Through these pages in this summer, we'll join John in this kaleidoscopic journey to witness and with the Spirit's help to try to begin to understand and digest what it is, all this stuff that we're taking in, all these 
crazy images that are happening. These are all clips from National Geographic magazines trying to tell this story. And if we're doing it right, we'll have our eyes focused on Jesus Christ, who is called the faithful witness. Go back and read our passage from this morning. Jesus is the faithful witness. And Jesus, as faithful witness, is one of those phrases that really pops in the original Greek language. These words, faith, witness, these are huge words with massive resonance. Faith also means things like trust or trustworthiness or fidelity or allegiance. Witness doesn't sound either like Jack Nicholson or a Jehovah's Witness. The word actually sounds like the word that we have for martyr. Someone who bears witness with their body and their life, even unto death. Maybe this is the key to why we scrunch our nose uh, at either of those definitions of witness. They don't seem costly enough or faithful enough. But Jesus is the witness who made faithful choice after faithful choice after faithful choice to show us how to live. And it's Jesus' death that bears the sins of the world. And that's what this whole story is about. Revelation is not giving us anything new. It's rehashing all the things that we should know or think we knew in a new way. John's writing does something really subtle and interesting in defining this sort of faithful witness. He has this little idiosyncrasy um, in his way of saying and. It's just like a simple word, but the way he says it is like he says this thing and this thing. And we hear that like a list, but it's really saying this thing, which is this thing? Like, this thing um, defined by that, or this thing is possible because of that. Uh, it's really confusing, but let me see if I can show you a little bit. In verse 2, John says that, uh, that he bore witness to the word of God and to the witness of Jesus Christ, including all John saw. Can just as easily, or maybe be more accurately be translated, witness to the word of God, which is the witness of Jesus Christ. Before I lose you, like this is subtle, but this is really important. This means that John is defining God's word first and primarily as Jesus. The word of God, which is Jesus. This is huge, and it's particularly meaningful because John is no slouch when it comes to the Bible. Some scholars have estimated that out of Revelation's 404 verses, about 278 of them are quotes, allusions, echoes of Old Testament passages. Like 70% of this book relies on the previous witness of God, right? And so to say all of that is wrapped up in this picture and portrait and engagement with Jesus is a pretty big deal. It means they all point to and are under the control of Jesus who is revelation, who is God's true and faithful witness. When you look at Jesus, you see what God looks like. And one scholar says, apocalypse is shorthand for Jesus Christ. That's, that's what's happening here. This is also captured um, in other parts of the New Testament. I love Colossians 1 for this, and I especially love this uh, paraphrase from the 70s. It 
It's called the, the Cotton Patch Bible. It's by someone named Clarence Jordan who ran Koinonia Farms. And, uh, and it's like this colloquial southern black um, uh, kind of paraphrase of the Bible. And so he's paraphrasing Colossians 1, and he says, Jesus is a perfect photo of the unseen God. And a little later he says, the result is that Jesus is tops any way you look at it. Jesus is tops any way you look at it. John goes on to further explicate this. And in another one of those and phrases, it pops up in verse 5. It says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. But you could also say, the firstborn from among the dead. Who is the ruler of the kings of the earth? This is the start of the unveiling. It's precisely Jesus' death and resurrection which makes him the ruler of all. Jesus is ruler of the kings of the earth because he is the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus, who was killed, as it was meant to expose him as a phony Messiah, that death on the cross actually enthroned him, like vindicated and authenticated him as the faithful witness. And that faithful witness is built on suffering and sacrifice and obedience and self-emptying. Jesus shows us that he is trustworthy because he's been there and he's done that. Jesus' witness is firsthand and authoritative. It's not hearsay. Jesus' witness includes his ability to tell us truthfully from experience what it's like to hang out with God, what it's like to have a, a spot at the Trinity's table for all of eternity and what it is like to bring us into that abundant life. Jesus can tell us that because Jesus has been there and done that. But his witness also includes his ability to tell God the Father and God the Spirit truthfully what it's like to die humanity's very worst death. Outside of the city gates, abandoned and alone, betrayed and accused, and how his meeting us in the worst places that sin and death could put us actually creates the new creation among us. Jesus is the faithful witness because he's been there and he's done that. He's seen it and he's experienced it. Uh, I, I, it's this kind of capaciousness, this large, uh, high and wide and deep and high uh, sort of thing that, that reminds me of, of Paul bursting into prayer in Ephesians 3. He says, this is why I kneel before the Father. That every ethnic group in heaven and on earth is recognized by him. I ask that he'll strengthen you and your inner selves from the riches of his glory through the Spirit. And I ask that Christ will live in your hearts through faith. Again, that word faith. As a result of you having strong roots in love, and I ask that you'll have the power to grasp love's width and length and height and depth together with all believers. I ask that you'll know the love of Christ that is beyond knowledge so you'll be filled entirely with the fullness of God. Paul is writing run-on sentences because he can't get enough of this. He says, glory to God who's able to do far beyond all that we could ask or imagine. There's that word imagine. By his power at work within us, glory to him in the church in Christ Jesus for all generations forever and always. Amen. It's this 
expansiveness that gives Jesus not just authority, but also this ultimate empathy, I think. At all times, Jesus is both empathizing with what God wants for this world and what humanity needs. He knows it intimately. He's been there and he's done that. He knows he can empathize with God, he can empathize with humanity. Despite feeling sometimes those impulses and pains in his body and witnessing to the reality, he brings forth a new possibility for these things to be reconciled. Sometimes those things, what God wants and what humanity wants, are really widely uh, differing. And Jesus holds them and holds them in his body and reconciles them. I think this is what makes him a faithful witness. Jesus is not just a missionary or a tourist, right? He's a faithful witness. A missionary would bring a taste of God to us, or a uh, tourist would bring God back like a slideshow and some souvenirs from that time he was slumming it on earth. But Jesus is a martyr. Jesus is a witness. Jesus is one who bears these things in his own body. I think this, this really has a profound possibility for us. I don't think this just matters in how we read the Bible and it's just some intellectual exercise. I think this is, this is really uh, this worldly and practical. Um, like I think this, especially in our fragmented and polarized world, I think if we lean into and join into Christ the faithful witness, uh, it might mean that we're able to, to, to do better at holding these seemingly irreconcilable things together without taking like an easy pressure release on them. For instance, I'm sure if any of you are online this week, you've had your streams just inundated with news about this Alabama abortion bill, right? I think it's possible I think it's a faithful witness to care both deeply about women and their lives and choices and to give voice and possibility for voiceless and vulnerable unborn children. We don't often feel like we have those choices. Anytime you have a sort of polarization, two groups claiming a sort of care which kind of causes opposition rather than unity, I think when this happens, when there's polarization, I think that's actually a, a Christological crisis. <laughs> that, that there's something fundamentally wrong, especially when we're doing this in the church. There's something that we're not, we're not getting or something that we're leaving behind here. I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding and misliving into both Christ's divine and human witness here. A faithful witness likely is not primarily reliant on the courts. It's not primarily loud and vociferous on social media, but it joins with Jesus, the faithful witness, to hold these things together and, and to build a just world where there's dignity and courage and support for, women's and ki- for women and kids and families. If you're expecting me to, to say more <laughs> or how that happens, I don't really know, but I think it's going to take, again, that human imagination that's built upon and accesses the divine imagination to achieve this. Don't get me wrong. The answer probably actually is slower and smaller and more costly and more messy 
than likely anything our empire can imagine. And that's also what Revelation's about, is opening up and unveiling what the empire thinks and then what Christ's rule and reign think. It's slower, smaller, more costly, more messy, but so is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Perhaps this is why John the seer brackets the kingdom in verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother, who shares with you in hardship, kingdom, and endurance that we have in Jesus. He brackets it. There's a list and there's an envelope. Hardship, kingdom, endurance, all together in this thing. Hardship, kingdom, endurance. My instinct is to think that one of these things is not like the other. But maybe they're all like the other, right? Hardship, kingdom, endurance. What if the true life, like John 10.10, life and life abundantly, that's being revealed by God's Spirit and the faithful witness of Jesus Christ is hard, enduring work in and through normal people like y'all in normal places like this. And what God is asking is, can I get a witness? Like, that's it. Can I get a witness who looks to Christ, the faithful witness? We're going to, to be continued this thing next week and all summer long. I want to finish with a Gerard Manley Hopkins, um, actually more like devotional prose than his wonderful poetry that I normally uh, quote to you guys. He says this. He says, "If if we learn no more from a gospel or a sermon on the gospel than to know Jesus Christ better, to be prouder of him and to love him more, We learn enough, and we learn a precious lesson. He is the king to whom we are to be loyal, and he is the general we are to obey. The people that say to themselves as they walk, Christ is my king. Christ is my hero. I am at Christ's orders. I am his to command. Those people are children of light. Will you all pray with me? Lord, open, open our eyes and open our hearts to your revelation. And before we get distracted or intimidated by um, the way John writes or uh, the, the messages that uh, inundate us on a daily basis, um, Lord, give us the kind of clarity that can look to Jesus as the faithful witness, the one who knows everything about us, the one who knows everything about you and the one who does those two things at the exact same time and welcomes us into it. Uh, Thanks for that. Thanks uh, for these words and these word pictures and colors and sounds and uh, all the multi-sensory ways um, that you are trying to communicate with us. Uh, Thanks for uh, these people uh, who you've made uh, to be priests, uh, you've brought us into your kingdom. Uh, that's that's uh, an amazing task uh, to stand between uh, this world and you, to engage you, to be loved by you, and to share that love with others. Uh, grow us in that ability and capacity. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.